Thanks for joining us for another message from Southland Church. If you'd like any info on our church, check out our website at mysouthland.com. Book of Revelation. Last week we covered three chapters, chapters 17, 18, and 19. This last, the last uh, uh, part of Revelation uh, covers in big chunks, because there's big chunks that go together. So 17, 18, and 19, all about the harlot Babylon. We touched on that last week. This week we will do chapters 15 and 16. And if you're wondering why they're out of order, it's because, remember, chapter 14 gives us the introduction to 17, 18, and 19. And that's why we came out of chapter 14. And that's how we did those three chapters last week. And uh, today I'm going to do chapters 15 and 16, and then next week we get the really good news, which is chapters 21 and 22, which is the best news in all of Revelation, which is the new heavens and the new earth, and I'm really looking forward to that. But first here in chapters 15 and 16, we have this, the, the description of the seven bowl judgments. And you'll remember that the book of Revelation, roughly the way it's laid out, the first three chapters are this uh, letters to the seven different churches, and we spend some time there. And then the rest of the book is kind of based around this skeleton of three series of judgments, 21 judgments in all, seven in each set. You've got the seven seal judgments, and then you've got the seven trumpet judgments, and then finally you have the seven bowl judgments, which are the most severe at all. They get more severe as you go along. The seals are serious, but the trumpets are more serious, and then the, the bowl judgments are the most severe of all. But one of the things I want to show you, and I... I just can't wait to get to the end of the message, is even though this message and these chapters are about these severe judgments, uh, one of the big themes that comes through chapters 15 and 16 is that God is good and God is just. And that's really what this message is all about. So let's dig in and then we'll, we'll, we'll begin to see that even as we see these judgments described. Chapter 15, verse 1, John says, And I saw another sign in heaven, Great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. Now, I just want to sit on that phrase for just a moment. Isn't that beautiful? With them the wrath of God is finished. This does not go on forever and ever and ever. God is not perpetually angry and smashing the earth with judgments. There's this series of very severe judgments, but and in the end, they're done. For with them the wrath of God is is finished. That's actually a truth in the Bible. Micah says, uh, for, the, for God's anger does not last forever. Aren't you glad for that? God's wrath does not last forever. And so we skip ahead. I'm just going to skip ahead here to chapter 16. Chapter 15 and 16 really should just all be in one chapter, and chapter 15 is very short. In chapter 16, verse 1, we get the description of the first bold judgment. And then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and went and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Now, the first thing I want you to see at the beginning of this chapter is, I feel like a lot of times when we read these judgments and these descriptions in the book of Revelation, a lot of Christians just approach this and they think, these judgments are indiscriminately punishing all human beings on the earth. And I want you to notice, first of all, right off the bat, these bold judgments are not just aimed indiscriminately at every human being on earth. They are very specifically aimed at a group of people. Look at the last lines there. It came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Okay, first thing. These severe judgments. God is not just coming along and indiscriminately raging against people for being human beings. 
These judgments are specifically aimed at a group of people. The group of people, we've seen this before in the book. It's a big deal in the book of Revelation. Do not take the mark of the beast. Okay? So when the day comes that you need to take this mark in order to worship, do not take the mark of the beast. That is a huge theme in Revelation. And already that applies to us now. It's not just something for the future. Right? Already now we practice and we do not bow to pressure to... um, you know, uh, oh, why am I missing the word there? With pressure to compromise, right? When there's pressure to compromise, we stand strong, we stay true to Jesus. And so anyway, these bowls are actually aimed at people who have specifically rejected Jesus. They have taken the side of the beast. It's not just indiscriminate, okay? That's the first thing you have to understand about God's justice and these bowl judgments, okay? And I also want you to see here that the consequences of sin. By the way, when people take the mark of the beast, of course, in the short term, taking the mark of the beast makes life easier for you, right? Taking in the short term. And this is how it always works with compromise and sin. You wouldn't do it if it didn't make life easier or feel like it was better in the short term. So in the short term, when these people bow to, when, in the short term, when the government pressures you to do something, you know, stop believing this or do this in order that this can happen, the reason you bow to the pressure is because it makes life easier for, in, in, for a moment, for a time, for a season, But I want you to notice that in the end, the very thing that made their life easier in the short term makes their life worse in the long term, and that's how it always is with sin. And I so hope, so many young people here today, I so hope you can learn uh, from some of this, that actually in the short term, you know, one of the things, and again, I'm kind of going on a rabbit trail here, this has nothing to do with the bold judgment, so don't, don't write this in the notes of the margins of Revelation, but it's just the truth Sin brings short-term profit, but long-term pain. Obeying Jesus brings short-term pain, but long-term profit. You know, there's all kinds of things that people try to justify in our culture today, and I hear it all the time. Things like, for example, I'll just pick on one, premarital sex. Is it really bad, people say? Is it really bad? And if, I'm just, if we're just going to get married anyway in the end, it's going to be okay. Let me just tell you as a pastor, okay? You can ask Tim Ryan. I mean, now he's leading the church there in, in Winnipeg, but I can't tell you how many times he came into my office when he was counseling married couples years later who had had sex before marriage, and how many times, and that's not the only thing that causes problems in marriage, absolutely not, it's just one of many things, but he, he would say over and over again, when I deal with couples that are struggling in their marriages, it's amazing how the vast majority of them ha- had sex before they were married. There's always a consequence, even if you don't think there's a consequence. This is always what happens with sin. So these people take the mark of the beast, and in the moment it makes their life easier. In the moment you don't see, well, how could this be bad? Or in the moment it feels good. I mean, I just want to do it. Of course, sin has to have something good to it or nobody would want to sin. I mean, in the moment, it will give you some kind of profit. That's why we do it. But don't be fooled by that. You always end up reaping what you sow. And we see it here. The mark of the beast makes people's lives easier in the short term. But in the end, it's that very mark that comes back and we see their bodies marked with painful sores. But anyway, that's bowl number one is painful sores. We get to bold judgments number two and three. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea, and it became like the blood of a corpse. And every living thing died that was in the sea. And the third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. So bowls two and three are water turning to blood. Now, does that ring a bell for any of you from somewhere else in the Bible? Right? Does that, I mean, if you know your Bibles at all, water turning to blood, where does that come from? That comes from the Exodus, right? 
One of the most, you know, famous stories in the Old Testament or, you know, kind of one of the central, central stories in the Old Testament is the story of the Exodus. And that is not an accident. Throughout these bold judgments, chapter 16, uh, John is assuming that we all know about the plagues of Egypt and the bold judgments closely parallel the plagues of Egypt. Let me just show you plague number one from Egypt, which is the Nile turning to blood, Exodus chapter 7. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. He lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. So bowls number two and three are a direct repeat of the first plague of Egypt. Okay? And you're going to see this throughout the bowls. It's not perfect because there's seven bowls and ten plagues, but you're going to see this throughout the bowls. Almost all of the bowls are direct repeats of one of the plagues of Egypt. For example, I'll show you one more here, and then I'll just put up a little chart because I like charts. But uh, bowl number five is total darkness over the kingdom of the Antichrist. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. And of course, we all remember one of the last plagues in Egypt. What was it? God puts darkness. Okay, Exodus chapter 9 puts a darkness over the entire nation of Egypt. So if I put them all up there just to compare them quickly, you'll just see this. This is really important in chapter 16 because John's assuming it, and there's things we're supposed to learn from the Exodus in Revelation 16. But bowl number one is painful sores, just like the painful sores plague. Bowl number two and three, blood, Nile blood, darkness, darkness, terrible hail, and terrible hail. There's a close parallel that's meant to be there. Why is this there? And the answer is because what happened in the Exodus is a picture of what's going to happen in the end just before Jesus returns. In the Exodus, the people of God are trapped in bondage by a powerful king, Pharaoh, in Egypt, and they're being oppressed. And so God comes and he delivers them by mighty miracles and a mighty hand and delivers them out of Egypt. And that is the picture of the book of Revelation is that in the end Jesus is going to return and he's going to return to find his people uh, oppressed by powerful nations, powerful governments, powerful kings. And he's going to deliver us by powerful signs and wonders and miracles and a strong hand. Okay, that's the picture of Revelation, it's rooted in the story of Exodus. And if you want hope, sometimes when you're reading the news and it seems depressing out there, all the different countries that are persecuting Christians and all the bad things and the things that our governments are choosing to do, if you get depressed, go back and read the Exodus and be encouraged. That's the message of Revelation. Okay? Be encouraged. The people cried out to God and it didn't happen right away, but in the end, God delivered them out of that oppression even when it looked impossible. Now, there's another parallel with Egypt that is really important because, again, when people read the book of Revelation and you read these bold judgments, they seem really harsh. They seem really, really harsh. And, uh, and there's another parallel here because a lot of people look at the plagues of Egypt and they think the plagues of Egypt are really harsh. I've actually heard secular people say, you know, non-unbelievers, when they talk about, you know, how they say how God, the God of the Bible is just a violent, bloodthirsty God. And they'll quote the last plague against Egypt where all the firstborn sons of Egypt die. And they'll say, what kind of a God do you Christians believe in uh, who would put to death all the firstborn children of, of Egypt? That's a horrible thing. What kind of a horrible God is that that you guys worship anyway? 
And it's true, if you just take it out of its context, isn't it true if you just say, he killed all the firstborn of Egypt? It sure seems like that's true, actually. That is a bloodthirsty thing to do. But it's because they've taken it out of the context of its story. And the same is true with the, with the judgments of Revelation, by the way, and I'll show you that in just a moment. But if you just take it out of the context of its story, God killed all the firstborn of Egypt, it's like, wow, that sounds like a bad God. But if you look at the context of the story, it looks totally different. Isn't that true? What was Pharaoh, and the first thing, there's two things Pharaoh's doing, that when we understand what he's doing, then it makes sense why there's the killing of the firstborn. First of all, Pharaoh is not just being a little worldly. It's not why he gets punished. It's not just being a little worldly. What's he doing? Well, he actually has attempted genocide. In Exodus chapter 2, he tries to kill all the baby boys of Israel. He has enslaved the Israelites. He is violently oppressing them and killing them and enslaving them. So that's, first off the bat, that is an important piece of context, is it not? I mean, right there, if God decides to send in an army to defeat the Egyptians to, to, to release the, his people, the Israelites, he's justified. But the second thing you have to understand, and this is a huge theme in the Exodus story, and we see it also repeated in Revelation, I'll show you that in just a moment, is this theme of how many chances did Pharaoh get before God killed, finally killed, all the firstborn of Egypt? Nine chances, right? Nine chances. God doesn't go straight. So here's Pharaoh oppressing, violently oppressing the Israelites, killing the Israelites. Right there, he deserves to be conquered. But God doesn't go straight in and just wipe out Pharaoh. What does he do first? Turns the water to blood. Okay? Now, I mean, it's God, so wow. I mean, that's still a big deal. But nobody's dying. It's, I mean, the fish die, but the people aren't dying. Turn the water to blood. Okay? Let my people go. What does Pharaoh say? No. So what's the next one? Frogs. I mean, that's nasty. Okay? Some people don't mind picking up frogs. I mind. Okay, they're gross. And to have them everywhere, really nasty. Again, nobody's dying. Let my people go. No. Flies and gnats. Now, I'm pretty sure that plague actually moved over to Manitoba and has sat here ever since. <laughs> okay, I think that's what happened. But anyway, flies and gnats, right? Nine chances. Nine chances. It's not the firstborn. Nine chances. Let my people go. Let my people go. Let my people go. And every time Pharaoh refuses. And so finally, God says, if you don't do it, I'm going to kill your firstborn. Now, even here, what does he do in advance? He warns Pharaoh. You know that? He didn't just kill the firstborn and Pharaoh go, oh, if you only would have told me. He told him and Pharaoh had a chance still to repent. Look at this. Exodus chapter 11. Moses said, thus says the Lord. About midnight, so he's being told in advance, I will go out in the midst of Egypt, and every firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die. He's just telling him, this will happen. I've already given you nine chances. It's getting serious now. I will not let you continue to destroy my people. Even to the firstborn of the slave girl who is behind the handmill and all the firstborn of the cattle, there shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as there has never been, nor ever will be again, but not a dog shall growl against any of the people of Israel, either man or beast, that you may know that the Lord makes a distinction between Egypt and Israel, and he, that's Moses, went out from Pharaoh in hot anger. So even here, Pharaoh still this time, I mean, he's seen nine times Moses has said God's going to do this, and every time God did it. And now Moses tells him, let the people go, or God's going to kill the firstborn, and Pharaoh still refuses. 
when you get the context, is God a raging, violent God, or is God a protective father who gave a whole bunch of chances to the bully? Right? Context is everything. Now, you have to understand, these parallels are right there in Revelation. And it's a key theme that John puts into Revelation 16. Over and over again, these people have been given chances. They've been violent with the people of God. We're going to see that. It's not, God is not just judging the people of the earth because they're worldly. I mean, that is, there is judgment for that. But you have to know, in Revelation, it's not God's raging on the earth because people are worldly. Worldliness is bad enough, and there, there is judgment for that. But that's not what, why these bold judgments are so harsh. It's harsh because these people are persecuting God's people. I'll show you that here in Revelation 16. But first, you have to see they don't repent. Bowl number four. Here it is. The fourth angel poured out his bowl in the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent. Okay? Over and over again through 16. It's just like Pharaoh. Here you have a chance. Water to blood. Let my people go. No. Gnats, frogs, all these different things. Hail. No, 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 no. These people do not repent. Bowl number five. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. They are oppressing the people of God, and they refuse to repent. In fact, they are so much refusing to repent that in bowl number six, we're going to see them actually go to war with God. They're actually going to go to war with God. Look at this. Bowl number six isn't even God doing anything to people. Bowl number six is people trying to do something to God. Look at this. The sixth angel poured out his bowl in the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. So literally, God sends these judgments, they do not repent. God sends judgment, they do not repent. It's just like Pharaoh, they do not repent, do not repent. Finally, on the sixth one, not only do they not repent, they gather up their armies to fight against God. Now you say, how do you fight a war against God? Like, maybe in your devotions at some point you've read this passage and you've wondered to yourself, how does this work? God's judging them and they're refusing to repent, so then they gather up their armies. Are they hoping to shoot God and physically hurt him? Like, are they going to shoot all their tanks, point them up in heaven and try to, to hurt God or kill God? Um, and the answer is obviously No. So then what are they doing gathering their armies? They're refusing to repent, refusing to repent, refusing to repent. Now they gather up their armies. How do they hope to make war on God? And the answer is, the way the devil makes war on God and the way the nations of the war make war on God is they try to wipe out God's people. Okay, and I'll show you this in just a couple passages and we'll come back to Revelation 16. Revelation chapter 12 says this, Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who are her offspring? On those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. How does Satan go to war with God? He tries to wipe out us. Okay? Revelation 13. 
And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words and was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. Okay? So how, does, how do the nations war against God? They go to war against God's people. Isn't that awesome? Doesn't it make you happy to be a Christian? When people hate God, they're going to come after you. Okay? Good news. Welcome here this morning, all right? Okay, so now we go back to Revelation 16. Why are these armies... Okay. So, people refuse to repent. God's giving them chances. They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. They refuse to repent. Finally, they're so mad at God that they actually gather up their armies to wipe out God's people. Okay, so next question is, why do they gather at a place called Armageddon? Okay? How are they hoping to wipe out us by gathering at a place called Armageddon? So, because first of all, so a couple things here we have to think through. First of all, Christianity is not a place on a map. Isn't it true? I mean, we're everywhere. Okay? And the Great Commission is actually, by the time this is getting... This is happening right before Jesus comes back. The Great Commission will actually be completed, which means that literally we will be everywhere. Every tribe, language, nation, and people. Isn't that awesome? So the devil's going to try and stomp us out, and he's going to stomp a lot. But in the end, not everybody's going to be a Christian, not even close. We're going to be a minority, but we're going to be in every tribe, language, nation, people group on earth. We will be literally everywhere. Okay, so we're not a place on a map. So how do them gathering it up? Second of all, we don't have an army. I mean, we often talk in terms of spiritual warfare, so we are a praying army. But there isn't a Christian army that you can sign up for and become a soldier. We have Christians who are in the army in different countries, but we don't have a Christian army. In fact, Jesus forbade us to advance the gospel by arms. I'm not, it's not bad for a Christian to serve in an army in a country and defend their country, but Jesus forbade us from advancing the gospel through violence. So we're not even allowed to have a Christian army. So, okay, so Satan's going to go to war with God, and he's going to try to wipe out God's people. So the nations gather at Armageddon. How does gathering at a place called Armageddon help them wipe out Christians? Well, first of all, let's ask the question, because obviously it's not going to help them wipe out Christians. So where is Armageddon? Well, Armageddon, the word there, there actually isn't a place in the world called Armageddon. Armageddon is a word that means hill of Megiddo. Okay, so Megiddo is a place. Armageddon is, is the hill of Megiddo. Megiddo was an ancient city on a hill in northern Israel, but 100 kilometers as the crow flies from Jerusalem. So it's a place in Israel. Okay, and it's situated... And there's a wide plain that runs north-south through kind of the heart of Israel that runs right past this ancient city. It's now ruins called Megiddo. Now, again, we, I just went to Israel with a group here from church. It was awesome. Last month, when you go to Megiddo, you actually look out over this wide, wide plain. Because of the geography, this wide plain there, historically it has been a place where many battles have taken place. In fact, when you stand up there, you can see Old Testament history right in front of your eyes. 
So literally, when you stand in Megiddo and you look out across the plain, because it's just perfect geography for armies to meet. Armies have traveled through there throughout history. Armies have clashed there throughout history. But literally, when you stand in Megiddo, you look out at that hill, and that's where Samson fought the Philistines. And then you look at the next hill, and that's where, you know, Deborah and Barak fought the, the Canaanites. And then you look at the next hill, and that's where David had one of his battles. And literally, it, that, many of the battles of the Old Testament happened right there in Megiddo because it's the geography. Okay? So why the nations get mad at God? He's judging them. Repent, repent, repent. They refuse to repent. In fact, we're not repenting. We're going to gather all our armies at Armageddon. Why would they gather all their armies at Armageddon? Well, they're not going to kill all the Christians there because we're everywhere. And this brings up that there's actually a second group of people when Satan goes to war. He does not just try to wipe out Christians. There's actually two groups of people he tries to wipe out. And the second group is the nation of Israel. And in fact, one of the biggest prophetic themes in the Old Testament, repeated again and again and again and again. You can find it in Isaiah and Ezekiel and Joel and most of the prophets is a repeated prophecy, they called it the day of the Lord, that in the days just before God would return to earth, all of the nations would gather to destroy what? Jerusalem. I'll show you an example. Zechariah 14, Behold, the day is coming for the Lord, when the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst, for I will gather all the nations against, where? Jerusalem. This has to happen. This hasn't happened yet. It has to come true. This is God's word. For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city shall be taken, and the houses plundered, and the women raped. This is an awful thing. Now, again, I want you to keep that in mind, how awful this is, what's happening. Context. The bold judgments. Why are they happening? God's rescuing his people. He gives people many, many chances to repent. They don't repent, and this is what they're doing. They're trying to destroy Jerusalem. Okay? Half of the city shall go out into exile, but the rest of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So, Revelation is, and we see this throughout the prophets, the same thing. In the day of the Lord, the nations are going to gather against Jerusalem. They're going to try to wipe out Israel. Okay? So what's happening in Revelation 16 is the nations are going to war with God. The way they do that, they've already been persecuting Christians, and now they're going to try to wipe out the nation of Israel, okay? This is how human history, as we know it, is going to culminate in. Actually, I have one more Old Testament example here. Joel number two, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape. So it's a horrible time, but there will be some who escape, as the Lord has said. And among the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls. Next verse, chapter 3. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. This has to come true. This is God's word. This hasn't happened yet. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem. In the future, there's going to come a day and the nations are going to come against Israel and then God is going to restore her fortunes. This has to happen. Satan knows these prophecies and that's why part of his war against God is to war against this nation of Israel, even though they're not believers yet. They're not believers yet. They need Jesus. I mean, there are Christians in Israel, but just like here in Canada, many Canadians are not Christians. Most Jews are not Christians. So they, need to, they need to come to know Jesus. Okay? But in the meantime, Satan makes war on them. By the way, 
Um, have you ever wondered why in history, I mean, to me, the fact that the Jewish people out of all, I mean, here's this tiny nation of people, literally the, the country of Israel now is 114 kilometers wide at its widest point. That's about 470 kilometers long at its longest point. How on earth is it possible that for 2,000 years, different people groups have been hated. The Jews aren't the only people who have been hated. But they're the only people group who throughout the last 2,000 years of history, pretty much anywhere you go in the world, they're hated. Why, of all the people in the world, are they almost universally hated throughout history? To me, that fact is proof that this book is telling the truth. That there actually is a God, and there actually is a Satan, and there is a spiritual war going on. How else do you explain it? I mean, the Holocaust, Adolf Hitler gets this idea, and he kills lots of people, not just Jews. But specifically, he gets the idea, I'm going to exterminate the Jewish people. Out of all the peoples on the earth, I'm going to exterminate the Jewish people. And he manages to kill six million of them. That, I mean, that is satanic. How do you even explain that? And someone might say, well, that's just sort of a kind of unique freak accident of history. Except that it's not. You go through 2,000 years, and it's just repeated over and over again. Do you know that in 1290 A.D., England tried to expel all the Jews out of England. Then in 1396, France tried to do the exact same thing. 1421, Austria, same thing. 1492, now 1492 is a famous year for us as North Americans, if you know your history, which not everyone does anymore, but um, 1492 was what? Christopher Columbus discovered the Americas. It's also the year that Spain, who Christopher Columbus was part of the Spanish Empire, right? Uh, Spain was one of the most powerful empires in the world at that time. And the Spanish made an edict to all the Jews, you will either convert to Christianity, and their version of Christianity was so hateful and bloodthirsty, it wasn't real Christianity anyway, but you will either convert to their form of Christianity, or you will die, or you will leave Spain. I mean, why does this happen over and over again? And we just go, we could spend several hours here actually talking about this. Now you say, oh, all the countries you've listed are European. So it was sort of a European medieval Catholic thing. Except then you look at the rest of the world, and it's not just Europe. That's the weird thing. Okay, you could maybe say, okay, the Europe, there was this weird European Catholic thing, and they hated the Jews for 2,000 years. Except then you go to the opposite of Catholicism, you go to the Middle East, and you go to Islam, and you find the exact same history. And you go around the world, and you find the exact same thing. You go to Russia, you go to Central Europe, and then into Asia and Russia, and you've got centuries of pogroms where whenever stuff went wrong in villages and cities, often the response was mobs that would gather against any Jews that were in their midst and kill them. I mean, how do you even explain that unless this book is true? Unless there really is a God and there really is a Satan who hates him and God did make promises to the Jewish people and part of Satan's war against God is to war against this nation. You know, it's not just in the past you say, well, all of that is over now. The world learned its lesson in World War II, except that it didn't. I did a little bit of research this week, just because I just wanted to give you the most up-to-date statistics, okay? I looked at, how, well, first of all, how many, you all know what the United Nations is, right? Can you just put your hand in the air if you know what the United Nations is, all right? So most of you know what the United Nations is, that's good, okay? So that's where all, pretty much every single country on the earth, pretty much, I think almost all of them, have a representative at the United Nations, and they have a big 
building headquarters there in New York City in the United States. And they make all kinds of resolutions, but it's sort of the center of, you know, where the whole world, literally the whole world, comes together to talk about things and make resolutions, okay? So this last year, the most up-to-date year, in the the last sitting, so I think they're off for summer now, from, from 2018 to 2019, from fall to this year's summer, in the last sitting of the United Nations General Assembly, this last year they passed 27 resolutions against countries condemning them for various things, okay? Now, okay, any of you reading the news knows, I mean, they could have probably passed hundreds of resolutions because there's been hundreds of really bad things done this last year. Wouldn't you agree? But the UN agreed on 27 that they said these countries should be condemned for horrible things and being terrible. So out of those 27 resolutions, how many do you think, I mean, because there's some really bad countries out there. I mean, we could just take a while here and just make a list of all the countries none of you would ever want to live in because they're horrible in terms of what they do to women, in terms of what they do to Christians, in terms of freedom of speech and religion. We go on and on. The UN passed 27 resolutions. How many do you think were against the nation of Israel out of 27 by the whole world? And the answer is 21 this last year. 78% of the world's condemnation was against a tiny little country of just 7 million people that's 114 kilometers wide and 420 kilometers long, and that has freedom of religion and freedom of speech. I mean, we were were just there this last month. 20% of Israel proper is Arabs, and that Arab minority, they all have voting rights. They all have full rights as citizens. They have Arab politicians in the Knesset, in in their parliament. They have all freedom of religion, Who pays to protect the Dome of the Rock, which is the third holiest site in all of Islam? Who pays to protect it? Muslims? No. The state of Israel pays to protect it. They have Christian, Messianic Christian churches there. They've got every kind of different Jewish uh, religion. You've got Muslims there. You've got Orthodox. You've got Catholic. I mean, it is the meeting place of all the world's major religions. And you can go there and live there and be there. And all of these things... Yet, 78% of the world's condemnation went against Israel. Now, just to give you a little bit of context, you want to hear something really, really horrible that's going on right now? I mean, we hear about Israel in the news all the time. But you want to know one of the worst things in all of history is happening actually right now as we speak, and I bet you many of you in here today don't even know what's happening. That's how quiet it is. Do you know that right now in the nation of China, the Chinese government is actually trying to get rid of an entire minority group. I'm not even talking about Christians here, because as a follower of Jesus, I don't just care about Christian persecution. I care about any kind of persecution of any people. Do you know that in China right now, there's a, there's a minority group in China, and again, many of you will not even know about this, but you can look it up after I'm done here. Do you know there's a minority group there, and they're Muslims, but they're called Uyghurs, okay? Uyghurs, and it's spelled U-I-G-H-U-R, I think. but you can look it up. Did you know that right now the Chinese have put, and this is how big the numbers are, somewhere between 1 million and 3 million. They don't know exactly. 1 million to 3 million Uyghurs right now have been put into concentration camps just because of their ethnicity. You know how many resolutions the UN passed against China this last year because of that? You don't think there's a battle going on 
You know, does that make any sense to you? How about North Korea? I mean, the North Korean government is a cesspool of human rights abuse. Something like uh, uh, some percentage points of their population are in prison camps. They have babies that are born in prison camps and raised in prison camps. They have enough, they have, without even doing hardly any work, they have enough evidence just from the news to convict the North Korean leader on there's 11 things that are considered to be war crimes that the whole world has agreed. These 11 things are war crimes. They're really terrible things like using sexual abuse to torture people and murder and all these kinds of things, okay? And they have enough right now to convict the North Korean leader on 10 out of 11 of them. Like, he's not bad. He's really, really bad. You know how many resolutions they passed against North Korea this last year? One. 21 against Israel. Now, you say, are you saying that Israel is perfect in everything they do? No. Not one of these. They're not believers yet. Most of the country, they're 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 like Canada. No, no country is perfect. No nation of people is perfect. I'm under no illusions that the state of Israel is perfect. Nobody is. At the same time, how do you explain a history that repeats itself over and over and over and over and over again about a small group of people? I'll tell you how you explain it. Just the way the Bible does is that they really are the people of God. There really is a God out there, and there's a Satan that is at war with God. And when he goes to war with God, the Bible tells us he goes to war with God's people, he goes to war with Christians, and he, and he tries to wipe out the nation of Israel. And so we finish Joel chapter 3 here in verse 2. I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. Notice that God, this is God's word. Is it eternal or is it eternal? And I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my heritage Israel. Who? Does God say the land of Israel belongs to him? On behalf of my people and my heritage Israel, because they have scattered them among the nations and have divided up my land. So, back to Revelation 16. This is why the bold judgments are so harsh. It's the exodus all over. Okay? And that's what we read here, right? That's explicitly what Revelation says, verses 5 to 7. And I heard the angel in charge of the waters say, Just are you, O holy one, who is and who was, for you brought these judgments. Why? Why is he bringing these judgments? Not just because people are being a little bit worldly, even though that's bad enough. But he says, why? Because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. That's the context of Revelation. That's the context of why these judgments are so violent. And it's a context of why Jesus is having to do what he has to do when he comes back. And so I want to finish this message, though, with a little bit of a twist. I want to talk about God's judgment here to finish this. Okay? So when God comes back, that is the whole premise here in Revelation 16, is that when God comes back, all of his judgments are just because of the horrible things that are being done. Now, that's important that God is just. I think everybody here, we would agree that God is just. Now, what does it mean when it says, or when we say that God is just, what do we mean? Well, we mean a couple of things. First of all, if God is just, that means he must punish sin. He can't be too lenient, right? So, for example, if someone was convicted of murder here in Canada, and he was convicted in a court of law, and at the end the judge says, okay, you have been convicted of murder. Here is your penalty. You must pay $20. Would that be just? And the answer is no. It's too lenient. Too lenient. Not just. 
Now, that's usually where we stop, though. Most of us, as believers, when we think of God's justice, what we mean is God will never under-punish anyone because to under-punish anyone would be unjust. And I, the Bible agrees, I agree, yes, it would be unjust of God to under-punish. We actually never think of the other side either. We read these bold judgments and we think of God as being harsh because we have a picture of him actually punishing people more than they deserve, but it says here that he punishes them exactly what they deserve, and that's what justice is. Imagine for a moment, on the other side, let's imagine that there's rampant shoplifting here in Steinbeck. Okay? And maybe that is a truth reality already. I don't know. But anyway, let's say there's rampant shoplifting. Let's say city council gets together and they decide, that's it, shoplifting. This city's going to the, to the birds or whatever. It's just falling apart. We've got to put an end. So they pass a bylaw that says anybody who shoplifts is getting their hands chopped off. Okay? Now, would that be just? And if you think it is, by the way, don't put up your hand. Because I'll just tell you now, you are wrong. That would not be just, okay? It's not just to charge a murderer 20 bucks, but it's also not ju justice to cut off the hands of a shoplifter. So when the Bible says that God is just, we usually use that to mean God's not going to underpunish sin. But actually, it means two things when we say God is just. It actually means exactly what it says, which is what he said in his word, Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That's his justice. Okay? His justice is you don't over underpunish, you don't overpunish. You get exactly what you deserve. That's actually the God we serve. Now, the beauty is he actually offered us a way out because he gave his son Jesus. And if you accept Jesus into your life, then you don't have to get what you deserve because he takes Jesus' penalty in your stead, so he's still just. That's the beauty of it. But if you don't take, if you don't accept Jesus' penalty, then you pay. Now, here's the thing. When it comes to these bold judgments, we just think of God's wrath and his holiness and wrath, wrath, wrath. You have to remember, though, don't get so carried away on the wrath that you forget they're getting what they deserve. He is not over-punishing. God would not over-punish. And that's why I want to st state here at the end, I want to give you one last little twist and then we'll pray. One of the most common things that I run into, fears that Christians have, is fears for lost loved ones who do not know Jesus. Often I talk to parents who are sometimes, in some cases are bound up in fear. What if my kids never give their lives to Christ? Now, first of all, if a person doesn't give their lives to Christ, obviously, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Obviously, anyone who doesn't give their life to Christ can't have eternal life. But I know too many Christians who, when they pray for their children that don't know Jesus, or they pray for friends or loved ones, they're praying for them to know Jesus, but they're not so much praying out of love as they are praying out of fear. I mean, they are praying out of love, but they're praying out of fear. It's like this burden you can hardly carry in life. It's actually too much. What if my kids don't get saved and they're actually afraid? Do you know where that fear is? By the way, you will not find a single verse in here that ever encourages us to be afraid for loved ones when we pray for them. Perfect love is actually supposed to drive out fear. Did you know that? I'm not encouraging you, by the way, to pray less 
for your loved ones. I'm encouraging you to pray more, but I'm encouraging you to pray to love. You know what happened a few years ago? I was living more on the fear side with my kids. My kids are still young, but it was like, I, I just want my kids to know you, Jesus. But it was coming more to fear than to love. And I would carry that with me. And I, don't, I know there's many of you like that because I talk to people and they carry that fear with them. What if they don't get saved? What if they don't get saved? What if they don't get saved? And one day it was like Jesus said to me, am I just, do you trust me with your kids or do you not? Well, can I trust you? Because many of us actually have a picture of God as almost a monster. When we think of his justice, we don't actually think of it as what people deserve. We think of it as this. But can we actually trust God? Did you know it actually says in here, Philippians chapter 4, it says, do not worry about what? Anything. Does that include your lost loved ones? Yes. It absolutely does. You know why you don't have to fear for your lost loved ones? Ultimately, yes, they're going to have to face God. But aren't, don't you think you can entrust your loved ones to God because he is just and good? And if he's just and good, yes, they can't, nobody can have eternal life who hasn't accepted Christ. You can't have that without Jesus. But at the same time, you can trust that God is just and good. You don't have to be afraid all day. You say, again, you're taking away all my motivation to pray for loved ones. I think it's kind of sad that in North America, almost the only way we can get ourselves or other people to do the right thing is to try and scare them. I actually don't see that motivation here. Yes, the fear of the Lord in doing right for myself. Yeah, fear of the Lord. Amen. But this motivation that in order to do right, I have to be somehow afraid or in order to pray for my lost loved ones, we should be so full of the love of Jesus and so full of his eternal life that it's like, I don't want anybody to miss out on that. And so I pray for them out of that, not out of, I'm afraid that God is somehow a terrible, 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 terrible God. I actually can entrust my lost loved ones to Jesus. I can pray, oh Jesus, they need to know you. And then at the end of that, I can get up and I can go about my day because I know that in the end, I am confident that he is just and he is good. And it's not up to me to judge my lost loved ones. It's up to him. And actually, I trust him more than I trust myself. And I think that's actually the appropriate position we're supposed to take in prayer. I think it's the biblical position we're supposed to take in prayer. And all of it is based on the fact that he's just. He's good. So why don't you bow your heads with me and close your eyes. And let's pray to this Jesus who is both just and good. Lord Jesus, I want to thank you right now that you actually are just. You actually are just and you are good. And so right now, Lord, I know many people I talk to deal, they carry around this fear. This fear in their lives that this loved one won't accept you, whatever it is. And Lord, we are motivated to pray for our loved ones to know you because you're so amazing. But Lord, wherever there's that burden of fear, we are not strong enough to carry that fear. Would you lift us that fear off us and remind each of us in our hearts that we can actually trust you to always be just and always be good. Thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your love for us. And may we grow in that love more and more. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen.